Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let me just read. It's a great passage, really, really significant, very seminal passage on our relationship as Christians to governing authorities, politics, presidents, kings, emperors, our relationship politically to culture. And uh, this is probably one of the biggest passages on to, how, how, to guide us in this relationship with our government, all right, our relationship to our government. Look at verse 1. It says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, there are three institutional relationships that God has given to us that the Bible talks significantly about, all right? The first, I'm going to give these actually in, in the order of priority in your life. The first institution that we have a relationship with, which is the most important thing, is our relationship to our family, all right? Our relationship to our family. There's no really greater responsibility if we are blessed and God gives us a family. Uh, it doesn't matter who they are. We are blessed to have family, and we have these instructions about how to have a great relationship with our families. The, the second relationship that, that the Bible really talks about institutionally is the church. And, and God calls us in Jesus Christ to have a great relationship with our church. Can I get an amen? That's just a good one. You see, you want to have a good relationship with your church, which we talked about last week. And then the third institution that we get to really have a relationship with, and this is, again, in the order of priority, is the, our relationship to our government or our country or our nation or whatever it might be. And that's where Paul is going. Paul is going to, okay, this is how you need to relate to governing authorities. Now, I have to tell you that if you're like me, I have in the past gotten pretty fired up about politics. Have you? Uh, I, I've had some moments in my life where my government has either really frustrated me, like to the point of, I mean, just really getting on my nerves, 
And, or I've had moments in my life where I have made an idol out of my nation. I've, I've actually been kind of idolatrous with, with my nation and with my relationship to the government. And so I've, I've kind of gone and swung back and forth between these kind of two different realities. And I've had significant seasons in my life where a bad relationship in my mind and my heart to my government has affected my relationship with God. Has it ever affected yours? Or it's affected my relationship with other people or my fellow human beings and citizens. Has it affected you in that way? It's very difficult uh, to have a great relationship with your government that's biblical, that's measured, that's God-centered, that's rooted in the gospel of grace and yet justice and truth. Very difficult relationship to have. And so when we come to Romans and we come to this passage, we're really, we're, really, we're really grateful because the Bible is telling us to subject or submit ourselves to governing authorities. It's telling us to submit to governing authorities. And so when, when we come and we ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to submit to governing authorities? What does it mean to have a good, healthy relationship with political realities? I think about mass media, and what mass media has done is it, it has made uh, political theater like a constant, ubiquitous thing that we're always viewing. It's always on TV. It's always on social media. Everybody's talking about it, and it gets you really fired up. And, and because it's always around us, we're constantly emotionally dealing with it. So this passage is not so much... For us, like, hey, man, don't, don't rebel against the government. Don't become zealots. Don't try to take over governing authorities. But I would say that this passage, what I'm hoping it'll do in our life is really help us emotionally and spiritually. You know, some of you, you might be really fearful and anxious about your country. Some of you might be really angry about political things. Some of you might be tempted by this. And so I'm really praying that emotionally we will be able to submit to governing authorities in a way that's God-centering. And so what does this passage tell us to do? I really discern in Romans chapter 13 two things. I've only got a two-point sermon this morning. Two things that Paul is very emphatic about, about how to have a great relationship that's rooted in the gospel with the government, with politics, with our emotional and spiritual life in terms of our relationship with our government. And the first point that I want to say is that Paul instructs us to have a calm, qualified submission to governing authorities. Let me repeat that. Everybody say calm. Calm, qualified submission to governing authorities. Look at verse 1 again. He's so emphatic. It's very clear. He says, let every person, and I'm taking that to mean every person in the church, every Christian, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is almost unqualified. It is your job as a citizen of your country, wherever it might be, whether you're in Rome or America or anywhere else, your first job, the big E on the I chart in terms of your relationship to your government, is submission. You are to be subjected to Governing authorities. What does that word submit mean in the Bible? It's a great word, really great word. Submit means to grant leadership to people in your life that God has placed above you. 
It is a voluntary action, a decision in your life that God gives to you, your stewardship of where you're going to follow or who you're going to follow. And God is saying, you are to take that stewardship of submission and grant leadership to those that God has given to you as leaders. Great biblical, one of the most practically important Christian words that you will study is the word submission. Because in all of our relationships, there's somebody for us to grant leadership to in our life, isn't it? We are called to voluntarily give our followership to a leader that God places above us. That's in the church, it's in the home, and that's with your government. And it's, it's, it's not qualified at this point. He just says, that's just what you're supposed to do. You are to grant leadership to Rome to be your governing authority over you. Now, what's so spectacular about this verse in A.D. 57 is he's talking to Christians living in the Roman Empire. It's like, what? The Roman Empire was pagan. Nero was the leader. The the civil servants had no knowledge of God except for kind of a, a hearsay about the Jewish Bible and Jewish people. They had no idea or concept of a Judeo-Christian ethic. They had no concept of equality for all. And yet here's Paul telling Christians in AD 57, your job is to submit, to grant leadership to governing authorities, whether that's your local governor, whether that's your emperor, whether that's whoever it is. And Christians throughout all of Christian history have had to deal with this, whether they've lived in a nation with a good king or a bad king, a good emperor or a bad emperor, a good president or a bad president. The, the fact of the matter is, Paul is saying, your job is to grant leadership to governing authorities. That's why I say calm. I mean, the big deal is to let go of control that you don't have I mean, implicit in this passage is this idea like there are things you cannot control. You certainly can't control who's leaders over you. So you might as well submit and grant leadership to governing authorities in your life. Calm, qualified submission to governing authorities. And, but here's the really powerful, like, A-bomb explosion meaning of this passage. Paul says... Why are we to submit? Why are we to grant leadership to governing authorities in our life? He says, because there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And if you resist governing authorities, you are resisting what? What God has appointed. Now, beloved, if you want to have a calm relationship with your government, And a calm, measured, emotional, and spiritual life with politics. Here's what you need to say to yourself all the time. Very simple. Three words. God is sovereign. Can I get an amen? Amen. God is sovereign. There are no accidents. There has never been a president in the United States of America that wasn't put there by God. They weren't put there by voters. They were put there by God. There was never a governor in the state of Illinois, I know it might be shocking, that wasn't put there by God. There was never a policeman that pulled you over when you know he was trying to trick you that wasn't put in that cop car that wasn't put there by God. And there was no pastor grand leadership in a church that wasn't put there by God. Can I get an amen? You see, God is sovereign. God is in control. 
And Paul is saying, really, submitting to governing authorities is not really about what you think about them. It's about what you say about God. What is your confession about God? Is he in control or is he not? And every time I get all freaked out about politics and go, oh my gosh, it's a, and they're taking it away and they're going to destroy it and everything's going to go bad and my grandchildren are going to starve to death. You know what, God? You know what the Holy Spirit's saying to me? Shut up. God is sovereign. If Christians can follow Jesus and raise families in the Roman Empire, I promise you, you and I are going to be able to help our kids follow Jesus in our own country. Amen? God is in control. God put Nero there. God put Caesar there. God put Pontius Pilate in Palestine at just the right time so he could do his wicked deed. And Jesus could stand before him and say, you think you have authority, but actually you don't. It was given to you by God. And you are going to fulfill the purpose of God by having me executed, and I'm going to save people. You see, there's things going on we don't know anything about. And there's a part of us that needs to realize God is our father. And like any other child, we need to stop and say, there's things that God knows that I don't. He's in control. I don't have to know everything. It doesn't always have to go according to my preferences or my political party or whatever. I can stop, put my hands down and say, God is in control. God is sovereign. God's the one on the throne. Ain't nobody else on the throne. Paul is saying, calm yourself and submit because God is sovereign. You know who learned about the sovereignty of God and ruling an empire? There was this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Have you guys ever heard this story? It's one of my favorite stories. Nebuchadnezzar was the the king of Babylon. And he went and he took all these Jews into exile. You might think of Daniel, right? Daniel and the lion's den. You might think of all those stories in the book of Daniel we learned in Sunday school, right? And Nebuchadnezzar was was the king of Babylon. You know what Nebuchadnezzar kept saying to himself as he sat in his royal room? He kept saying to himself, I am God. I am the most powerful man in all of the earth. I rule everything. Look at all these Jewish exile slaves that I have. Look at all this gold that I've taken from all these nations. Look at how important and powerful I am. I am in control. And then he started having some bad dreams. Y'all know about those bad dreams? And he called Daniel in. And Daniel was to tell Nebuchadnezzar what those dreams meant. And you know what Daniel said? Daniel said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, what your dreams mean, your bad nightmares mean, is that you're going to lose your mind. And you're going to become like Howard Hughes and strip down naked and walk around with a bunch of cattle and grow really long fingernails and have really long hair and freak out and lose your mind and go insane. And you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He became just like Howard Hughes. He locked himself up in a, in a, in a, a field with the, with the cattle and he went crazy and he had no clothes on. He was running around mad and his hair grew out and his nails grew out. And then God brought him back to his senses. And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar the pagan Babylonian king said about God. One of the most significant passages on the sovereignty of God you will find comes from the mouth of this horrible king. As he came back to his senses in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, here's what it says. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, And praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Is that so powerful? I love that passage. This pagan Babylonian king is saying, God is sovereign. He's the one that's in control. Kingdoms are run by him. One of my most favorite Proverbs is, uh, it comes from Proverbs 21 and verse 1, where, uh, where the proverb says, I'm not going to find it. it, was, it was, I'm speaking in tongues, interpret. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, but he turns it wherever he wills. Beloved, do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying the most controversial, radical thing you will ever hear anyone say. God is in absolute control. Who put Nebuchadnezzar in charge of Babylon? God. Who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take God's people into exile? God. God did it all. God did it all. Hmm. Calm. Submission. That means that we submit to leaders that we like. And that means we submit to leaders we don't like. That means that we honor those that God has called us to honor, even when they don't follow our preferences or don't have our same exact values. We pray for people and we pray for leaders. Can I get an amen? And every time you do that, listen to me. Every time you pray, like the Bible tells you in 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for your rulers. Every time you do that, that's not about what you're saying about your leaders. That's about what you're saying about God. God, you're in charge. Don't get angry. Pray for them. If you, th- if you think they really need to change that bad, well, then ask the sovereign God of the universe to change them. And you know who could change them? God can. God could take a governor of Illinois, make him go crazy and be like Howard Hughes, and then wake up one day and go, oh, my gosh, God is the ruler. I think I'll change my mind about some stuff. That could happen. Calm. Calm submission. Look at verse 3, Romans 13, verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, it's interesting, because not only is God sovereign, God is wise. And God is the one who instituted the very concept of governments and borders and nations. God is the one who did this. And this is a great thing that God did. He did it all the way back in Genesis. God instituted borders and nations and then broke them down into political realities and allowed all of this to happen because God knew that because of total depravity, because of human sinfulness, if there were no governments and everything was just handed over to the mass of people, that would lead to total anarchy. Can I get an amen? We would just flip out and all everybody go kill each other and do their own revenge and bear our, our swords and go and eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth everywhere we go. And it would be absolute madness. And so what God did is he shrunk the level where authorities and swords could be kept so that there could be somewhat order. I read this week this idea. I thought it was very profound and I, I have to, I'm still chewing on it. But the author said this, it's better to have a bad government than no government at all. 
And God is awfully wise to institute these rulers and policemen and people who go and kill bad guys. And of course, I mean, the way I'm going to read this passage, I'm a little bit more conservative politically, I'll tell you. But the way I read this passage, you go, here's the role of the government, right? The role of the government, the way, if, if, the way God put it together, the role of the government is to protect borders, go kill bad guys, go put people in jail so that I can be safe, so that you can be safe. And certainly that's true. But even when governments aren't perfect like that, or maybe they have a different kind of uh, flavor to them, still the, the overall principle is this, that God has instituted this for our good. And we are to submit to those rules. And certainly, if the government puts over us rules, then we are to obey the laws of the land. That means if there's a speed limit, you're to be like me and always perfectly go the speed limit. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm saying? Like, if, if, you know, always be happy when you vote. You know, that, these are the things we're called to do. But overall, if the government places the law of the land over us, we're to follow that law, even if we don't totally agree with it. We're still to submit because God has instituted and government is his servant. Bring about justice, bring about borders and order and all of those things. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also... For the sake of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, according to this very thing, pay to all what is due to them, so forth. Pay taxes, pay honor, pay respect. This is the way we are to behave in our submission to political realities. Calm submission. But here is the qualifier. See, there's a, there's a qualifier both in this passage and in other passages. Our submission is to be calm, but it's to be qualified. And the big question is, well, do we do what the government says every single time, no matter what? And the answer to that is what? No. There are exceptions. They are few. But there are exceptions to when civil disobedience is appropriate. I always think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's, which is kind of what Paul is saying when he says pay taxes and all of those things. But that's a very interesting thing because he gets this coin. The coin has the image of Caesar on it, and he says, see this image on this coin? Give that to Caesar, but give to God's what is God. And what he was saying was there's some things that belong to Caesar, and we are to do that, whether it's pay taxes or follow speed limits or whatever, it's the, whatever it is. But there's also the flip side of the coin, pun intended. And the flip side of the coin is that we're to give to God's what is God's. And what do we give to God? We give him our conscience. And what is conscience? The word conscience actually means knowledge is, is shunts, and con is with. That means we have knowledge with God, that we guide our knowledge with the knowledge of God. We have a common knowledge with God. And we are to follow our God-given, Christ-centered, biblical-oriented conscience And sometimes our conscience will tell us that there are times when civil disobedience is appropriate in the life of a believer. And let me give you three exceptions that James Boyce gives in his book, uh, Two Cities, Two Loves, Christian Responsibility in a Crumbling Culture. He gives us three examples of biblical civil disobedience. The first thing is this, morality. If the government comes to you and tells you to be immoral, 
tells you to do something that you know beyond you know that is immoral, then you are to disobey governing authorities. One of the great examples of a government forcing Christians to be immoral is when Adolf Hitler began to take over with his Nazi party in Germany. And what he began to tell people, and he told Christians, and he told the Christian church this, he said, you are no longer to do business with Jews. You are no longer to serve Jews or, or to have fellowship with Jews. You are completely to separate. And if the government ever came to us and said, there is a race of human beings that you are no longer to have fellowship with, guess what? Ain't happening. And Corey Tim Boone's family took in Jews, and all those Christians would hide Jews away in their homes in Germany. What brave people. And they disobeyed the governing authorities because it was immoral to deny somebody rights because of their race. In our own country, the civil rights movement of the 60s is a great example of civil disobedience. I think it was completely biblical. When the governments, any local government can say, well, only, only this race of people can be here, or only this race of people can eat here, that's when civil disobedience needs to happen, all right? Because racism is evil, it's immoral, and if the government forces us to be racist, then we are to repent. Of course, we're to repent of racism in our heart anyways, but certainly if the government does that. So morality. Here's the second thing that the government cannot force us to not do. The government cannot tell us that we cannot do evangelism as believers. If the government comes and says, you can no longer preach the gospel in your churches, you can no longer preach the gospel on the streets, you can no longer share your faith in Jesus Christ, that could happen. It's happening around the world, right? There are Christians that live under governments like that. Then civil disobedience, that's a, that's a qualifier, We are witnesses of Jesus Christ. And you can arrest me, and we're not going to raise up militaries for our churches and protect us from police to come and arrest us. Arrest us if you want, but we are going to preach the gospel. We're going to share Jesus with people. Jesus died for everyone, all the nations, and he defeated death. And we want to preach the gospel. A great example of that you can read about in Acts chapter 5. Remember that? Acts is so great. Remember when we went through Acts and it took us like 10 years? Remember that? It was like... First decade of my ministry here. Anyways, but you remember, it was really great because like, like, like the authorities would come and arrest Peter and John and they never fought back. It wasn't like, don't arrest me. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to beat you up. Don't you do it. You know what I mean? Like I might do if somebody tried to arrest me this morning, you know, but they were like really Christ-centered and filled with the Holy Spirit. What they did is like, yeah, take me to jail. And if God wants me out of jail, he'll get me out of jail, which sometimes like an angel would show up and like open up the button. They would walk out. So you're totally obedient to the authorities. They submitted. But when the authorities told them, you can't preach this gospel anymore, remember what Peter said? Peter said, hey, listen, if you think it's right for me to not say what God's told me to say, hey, that's for you to judge. But we can't help but tell the things that God has done here. We are going to preach the gospel. So keep arresting us, keep beating us, keep persecuting us, keep killing us, but we are going to preach the gospel. A third reason, and this is a little bit more vague, and you got to be really careful with this one, and you got to pray through it. This is a conscience issue. But if the government is hurting other people, even, maybe it's not you, but if the government is hurting other people, then that's when you need to step up in one way or the other and help those people and disobey the government by protecting those people. You know, I, I think about issues of, like, the unborn, I think about issues of of life. And if it's within our power 
to help human beings flourish and live, then we need to do that. Now, you can't start breaking other government laws to protect people. So you can't start destroying property, amen? You can't trespass private property. You can't do things that break the law so that you can, break, so that you can practice civil disobedience. You need to be as, as orderly as you can. But when people are being hurt, and it's because of the government, then it's your job to not submit in those situations. So you can see there's a calm, qualified submission to governing authorities that we need to practice. And may God just kind of guide us through that by the Holy Spirit and give us wisdom. But the second thing I see in Romans chapter 13 in terms of our relationship to the government is not only submission, but participation in culture. And this is really important because on the one hand, we could take the gospel and we could say, man, I belong to the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to the kingdom of God. I don't need to pay taxes anymore. I don't need to do any of that stuff. Jesus is my Lord and my king, and nobody's my king but Jesus. And so I'm going to die and go to heaven. So I'm not going to participate in culture anymore. I'm just going to completely withdraw. I'm not going to do any of those things. Of course, Paul says, pay your taxes, stay involved. But then he goes into this great thing about what you can control. What you can't control is who your leaders are. You can vote. You can do those things, participate. But you can't really ultimately control a lot of those things. But what you can control is how you are a citizen in your nation. And so in verse 8, I see this radiant, holy participation. Not only should we practice calm, qualified submission, but we should also practice radiant, holy participation. Look at verse 8. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what's he saying there? You know, this is de- I feel like this is really connected to what he's just said about governing authorities. I think he said you need to submit to governing authorities and give that to God. Participate where you can, but give it to God. Now, your job now is to go into your village and your city and your neighborhood and your, where you live. And what you are to do is you are to love people. And live out the law of God's love. In fact, the law is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Whether it's not coveting or not committing adultery or not stealing all of the Ten Commandments. You see, that is an expression. Jesus said you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So you can't control who your president is all the time. But you can control if you love your neighbor or not. Can I get an amen? You see, you can't control all these things that the media makes you think you can control, which you can't. But what you can control is how you treat people, how you interact in your family, how you represent what God is and what the kingdom is. Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, stay involved. And the way you stay involved in the citizenry of your country is you love one another and you love people and you treat people as you would want to be treated and you don't steal. So if you find yourself living in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is the king over you, if you find yourself living in Rome and Nero is over you. If you find yourself living in Persia and Cyrus is over you, it doesn't matter. Your job is to love one another, build communities, build the city, help the neighborhood, all of those things. 
There's a great passage on this from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, and I don't have time, but I would encourage you to read Jeremiah 27 because he talks, Jeremiah kept saying, you know, all these false prophets are coming to you. And the false prophets were telling the people of God, don't submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you submit to him. God doesn't want you to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah was saying, those prophets are false prophets. You know a a prophet is false when it's always God is going to give you exactly what you want. When you hear that kind of stuff, that's a false prophet. If the only thing you hear from the prophets of the Lord is sweet things that tickle you and tell you exactly what you want to hear, it's typically not right. Now, sometimes we prophets get to tell you really wonderful things. It's really happy. But other times... And Jeremiah said, "Uh uh-uh, God has called you to be under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. You are to live in Babylon. That is right now, that is where you are supposed to live. You got no choice. That's where you live. That's Jeremiah 27. But I digress. But Jeremiah 29, listen listen to what Jeremiah tells the exiles who were living in Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What was Jeremiah saying? You get to be a blessing. You get to live in your city and pray for your city. You get to have families there. You get to have... You get to give your daughters in marriage unless you're Joshua Gutteridge. Amen. You, you, get to, you get to go. You get to pray and be a positive light of the world. In New Testament terms, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. How can you help your city? How can you participate in the things that you are close enough to participate in? If you're so fired up about national politics, well, then what are you doing regionally? What are you doing locally? If you're so passionate about righting wrongs, well, then what are you doing to pray for your city? What are you doing to represent a different ethic and a different idea? Ultimately, Jeremiah and Paul and Jesus and Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't have time to go there. I'm not going to go there. You can read it. But Peter says, you are to live as exiles and make your conduct so holy and filled with love that they will take note of your conduct. They will know you're different by the way you raise your families, by the way you're helpful, by the way that you're a positive influence for the glory of God. Maybe you're under the yoke of a horrible national government. Maybe you're under the yoke of too much taxes. Maybe you're under the yoke of whatever else is going wrong, yet you can still bless people and show them a different ethic, a different way, and you can pray for your city. Does that make sense? You see, we're exiles. That's what we are. We're exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
We are exiles. The word exile, here's what it means. It means somebody who lives in a country that's not their own, that their, that their permanent residence is in another country, and yet they are permanently residing in a country that's not their own. So we are neither tourists. It's not like we're, we're called to be tourists. Like, well, I'm just going to go through this world and just enjoy the things that I just love, and then I'm going to ignore the rest and not think about negative things, and I'm just going to go, and I'm going to have my nice house. I'm not going to think about any of that stuff. We are not tourists. But we are not fully residents. We live here full time until Jesus comes back or we die to go be with him. And from that time to this time, we are to pray for and love one another and love our neighbor as ourselves, and to be a positive influence. You see, we are to live a radiant life. We are to be radiant and holy participators in our culture. That's how we behave. Look at verse 11, and let me finish this up. Paul says, Besides this, you know the time that the hours come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I mean, it's, it's really exciting because we get to live in our time. We get to be, we get to be present here. We don't have to... To, to spiritually go into some mystical la-la land. Like we get to live in history. We, we were made for a time such as this. But Paul is saying, while you're participating, while you are radiantly showing the love of God, make sure that your behavior is holy, that it's separated from the others, that you don't so fall in love with the time that you're living in that you begin to take on their values, that you begin to take on the sexual immorality, that you begin to take on the sensuality, that you get squeezed into a mold of sinfulness and evil. Paul is saying, listen to me, beloved, you live in this time, but every day is a day closer to home. Every day is a day closer to Jesus Christ. So spiritually and morally and in a holy way, wake up, wake up. I love that. You know, Paul's always doing things like that. Like in Ephesians, he's like, he's like, he's like, grow up in Ephesians 4. I love it when he says, grow up. In Ephesians 5, I think he says something like, clean up. You know, here he says in Romans 13, he says, wake up, don't fall asleep morally, be holy, be separated. And he says in that final verse, put on, take off the deeds of darkness, take off the dark evil tendencies that we're attracted to and put on, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, starve the flesh Feed the Spirit. Put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That takes us back to Romans 6 when Paul was talking about how the Holy Spirit is helping us become what we already are in Jesus Christ. We are new people, amen? We have a new mind in Jesus Christ. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's helping us to be what we already are, what our identity in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are to put on Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think this is what I kind of, sometimes I really miss, I'll close with this. Sometimes I really miss wearing suits to preach in. You might be surprised by that. I bet you're surprised by that. Are you surprised? 
Doug's like, yes. Yes, I am, Josh, because I never want to wear a suit again. Right? I used to like ties. I used to go to, like, Joseph A. Bank and get really nice ties, you know. And, and I've noticed, by the way, I've just discovered Goodwill. You can get great clothes at Goodwill, man. And I get so excited to go shop there. I give my clothes to Goodwill, and then I buy Goodwill clothes, and it's a really wonderful thing. I'm really excited about Goodwill. But you can buy nice ties there. I thought, I'd go back to the suit thing for pretty cheap. You know, and I get some ties, and it's really great. And so when I started kind of dressing down for preaching and getting casual, you know, and doing kind of the whole contemporary thing, and I thought, this is great. This is so much more relaxing. And, uh, you know, it helps me be a little bit more conversational, just a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's really great to connect with people and say, hey, man, it doesn't matter. You know, God doesn't care what we wear as long as we're wearing something. Amen. And... And so, you know, it's really great. But I do miss wearing suits because when I wear a suit, you know, you get a suit on, you get a tie on, you get up there. You feel, you know, you're like, I am a preacher, you know. I am. You know, I got some important stuff to say today. You know what I mean? We are talking about the Bible. I am in a tie and a suit, and it's a very nice tie and suit. And I feel, I feel better. I feel like I am very articulate which you might, you're like, you might want to start wearing suits. might help you, you know. Uh, you know, it's what happens. And you know what? I'm honestly, in, in truthfulness, I'm not going to start wearing suits. But here's what the deal is. You know what Paul is saying? Put on what you already have, which is Jesus. Don't walk around with a sloppy mentality. Don't walk around with a casual perspective that what you do doesn't matter. Don't walk around. You are a new person in Jesus Christ. Put him on like a tuxedo. Walk into that world, walk into that evil culture, pagan culture, where you got bad governing leaders and you got all these politics and you got the mass media. By the way, they profit when you get all fearful and anxious and mad because you're watching their commercials and then you buy the flashlight off of the 1 800 number. I love those commercials. Anyways, and so, but, but what you got to do is you got to say, man, I'm putting on Jesus. I'm going, I'm not going to think sloppy. I'm not going to allow myself to get casual in what I believe and what, what I think that God has established as boundaries. And I'm going to walk in them because I'm going to put on Jesus Christ. This is who I am. And Paul is saying, the end is near. This temporary world is not forever. So stop acting like it's forever because it's not. Put on Jesus Christ and walk as children of light. And you know what you'll end up doing? You'll end up being a blessing because you'll be different. And yet if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll be balanced. You won't be critical or self-righteous or practice some kind of ungodly judgmentalism or all that. But you'll still walk in the truth and you'll represent something that's very different. Can I tell you, how can I relate to politics so I don't go to overly fired up? I need calm, qualified submission which, by the way, is very transferable to all your relationships. And another second transferable relationship to all your, or principle to all your relationships is you need radiant, holy participation. Let's pray.